Do you want to go deeper in your faith even while you're on the go? No matter how busy the season you're in, Access More has a library of faith-based podcasts to help you grow spiritually. With podcasts from Christian thought leaders such as Christine Kane, Lisa Harper, Taryn Wells, and Bob Goff, you can hear podcasts on religion, culture, family, entertainment, and so much more. Access More gives you a safe space to find inspiring conversations about faith. Start listening today at accessmore.com. So accepting um, that someone may die is so difficult because the thought of losing someone you love is traumatic and devastating. And really a little side note here, we were never meant to taste death. Death is not part of our design. Death came in with sin. So it's the only natural process we go through that we never recover from. Nobody is traumatized from being born. Nobody's traumatized from growing up. Nobody's traumatized from any natural process, your hair growing, your fingernails growing. Nobody's traumatized by that. We're traumatized by death because we were never designed to taste it. And so accepting that Jesus has the keys to death in Hades, that now Jesus possesses death, we as believers and Christians, have to be able to accept that and be okay with it because we don't grieve without hope. We have hope. We know that this is not the end. And that is a great way to start the process of accepting that someone may die in their, in their addiction. Thank you for stopping by my podcast, Finding God in Our Pain. Welcome. Hi, I'm your host, Sherry Pilkington. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand stories of how the God of the Holy Bible meets real people in their real pain. We look at the good God we profess through the lens of pain and suffering. I'm processing the most painful season of my life after unexpectedly losing Larry, my husband of 32 years. In my journey, I've discovered that there are many types of deaths. Maybe you've asked God, how could you let this happen? Why me? Where are you, God? Do you even care? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Here at Finding God in Our Pain, we don't shy away from the tough questions. I ask them to my guests. I share what I've experienced. We give real examples of how God shows up in the darkest, most painful situations in life. May the stories that you hear and the advice you receive encourage you to engage the heart of God about your painful places or memories or experiences or even your unmet expectations. Lean in close to God's heart because he speaks beautiful things in the dark. My guest, Stephanie Jordan, and I talk about boundaries and how they are necessary in unhealthy relationships. We even discussed Christian marriage where abuse is present, and she shares what God revealed to her about releasing her from her first marriage and how divorce was the fruit of her sin. Stephanie, a mother of five and now a widow, talks about the difference in her two marriages, one that turned abusive and included alcohol, and the second to a man who was previously known as a hardcore punk rocker with a drug problem. But before you make any assumptions, he did come to a point in his life where he accepted Jesus as his personal savior, was living a clean life, and even started a ministry for the homeless. But as many of you may know, 
Addiction is a demon that does not give up easily. And so Stephanie found herself once again, having to draw boundaries to keep her and her children safe. Stephanie gave us insight into what it looks like when relationship goes off the rails. How do we know we need to remove ourselves from the equation? Under what circumstances? For how long? And she even talks about the importance of relaying clear boundaries to your children so that you can keep yourself healthy and sane as a parent who's getting pulled in every direction. She and I talked also about God has set boundaries and has requirements in place for us to be able to do life with him. And it's a life that is healthy, respectful, and wise, discerning, loving, kind. And that's just to name a few of the benefits. And if you're thinking that boundaries don't feel so loving, she also explained why those who have a hard time saying no for the purpose of setting a boundary, how they perceive boundaries, one of which is that they feel selfish when they set a boundary, especially with someone they love. Something she said that I really liked, and it was along the lines of, if you can't say no, you're not ready for no. And so she breaks that down for us. Stephanie is lighthearted, grounded in the word and down to earth. In other words, you'll connect with her easily. So let's listen in. Welcome, Stephanie. I am excited to have this conversation on boundaries. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. With regard to your background as a child, you shared that you were a Christian. Were your parents Christians uh, and they had you in church? How did you meet Jesus? My parents were teetotalers. Um, I had never been around drugs or alcohol or anything until my teen years with friends. Um, And I guess I got saved or I guess I met Jesus enough to accept him into my life when I was about six years old, but God always talked to me and I just didn't know that it was God talking to me. I had not been introduced to like the power of the Holy spirit and how the Holy spirit operates intimately with you. And so I was probably early twenties, I would say before I actually fully grasped like my entire salvation and God loving me prior to that. It was like, I just really loved him and respected him, but I was still doing it all my own way. I didn't understand submission. I didn't understand obedience. And so really my, my submission and obedience heart didn't come in until my twenties, but I got my call to ministry in a dream when I was 19 years old. And I told God he had the wrong person. <laughs> Did you really? You got the wrong person, Lord. And yes. what was God? And what was God's response? Nothing at the time, but He's very convincing. And you know, Proverbs says a foolish man will have a fill of himself. And buddy, did I? God was like, "All right, you want to do it your way? We'll see how that works for you." Uh huh. <laughs> and it all went very poorly. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm relating to that right now. Some things are coming back to me, and I'm thinking, thank God, literally, that He is patient and He is kind, and He never gives up on what He has planned for us. God tells you at 19 that He has a ministry for you, and you're like, eh, not right now, Lord. I need to get out here and live life my way on my terms. We've all done that, right? So you put God on hold or on pause and you pursue life in its fullest. You're a Christian. How did you get into the punk scene? I was always drawn to the dark side. Uh, 
I mean, I would say I was a punk rocker from the time I was born. I came out with two pistols loaded, ready to fight the world. (laughs) And uh, my dad died when I was four, which I think fueled my rage and anger. Um, My mom remarried very quickly. Uh, It was about just over a year later. And my stepdad and I did not have a good relationship. And so I was filled with piss and vinegar and a ton of anger. And so were all the other punk rockers. And the beauty of it is, is it's the only scene I've ever found that like you can be mean to each other and you still like each other. And that's just not very common. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I haven't found that because when you're mean to, yeah. Well, that probably. I'm not saying it's healthy. It was just fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we're talking about boundaries. So that probably did not help with trying to discern boundaries because you, at some point, you meet your first husband, Ben. Tell me about Ben. So we were 19 when we met, and I was in cosmetology school. And I I knew he was too wild for me. Um, but like a moth to a flame, <laughs> I fell for him hook, line, and sinker. And I loved every inch of him. He loved every inch of me. And I really feel like I came into myself with him. He was the first person I, I really honestly think had truly genuinely loved me in my life. My mom was a great mom, but she because of her codependent kind of behaviors, there were a lot of times that I felt like she loved or chose my stepdad over protecting us or loving us or choosing us. And so there was hurt there that I could not reconcile as a teenager. So his love felt like love, but it was very tainted because he was an alcoholic. So that just goes to show you my unhealthy thinking, like how unhealthy I was at the time. But um, he was a total romantic. He was, you know, a punk rock guy. Like we just locked and loaded and it was us against the world, which is what I had always romanticized in my head. That is not real. (laughs) That's understandable for sure. Because young love can be just that young love, immature. I'm thinking we've all been through it. So what happens that Ben is, is your first husband? So God actually told me not to marry Ben before we got married, but I was 21 and dumb as dirt and totally in love. And so I did it anyway. (laughs) And um, we got married in November 99. In March, it was either March or May. I cannot remember the exact time, probably because of trauma. He beat me up for the first Mm -hmm. time. Wow. And it was so, like, he had always, like, pitch fits. He would break things, you know. He would do dramatic things. He was an alcoholic, right? So, um, but see, coming in the punk scene, like I, I loved punk shenanigans. You have to remember this is part of my mindset too. I was all about punk rock shenanigans. So when you're not married to it, it's often funny, but when you're married to it, it's not 
always so funny. I mean, like we would get kicked out of every show that we went to. Looking at that from the outside, looking in, we would always joke about it and it was funny. But when you're intimately involved in it, it's not. So you have to you have to know where my mind was at the time is that I loved the shenanigans that came with the punk rock culture. And then once, when it got violent toward me, that became a whole different thing. And it felt like it was very out of left field. What had happened, interestingly, we had started hanging out. He had run into somebody that he had known years before. And we had started hanging out with them a little bit. And I never liked them. I felt very uncomfortable. And looking back on it, I believe there was a demonic spirit that is why I never felt comfortable because I'm I'm still a Christian through all of this, right? So I still love God and I still carry the Holy Spirit inside of me. And like when we would go to their house, I would always feel like I wanted to leave, but I wasn't living for the Lord at the time. So there was no activating of my own spirit. There was no rebuking the spirits in the name of Jesus. There was no, but I was still possessed by the Holy Spirit. So my spirit was still pushing all this away from me. And I honestly believe that is what triggered him to go this route he came from an extremely abusive background with lots of trauma and so um the first time it happened I was so dumbfounded it happened that I thought we could work through it I thought that it was going to be okay um the second time it happened I took my first pregnancy test on July 3rd. Um, I got confirmation at the health department on July 5th, and he beat me up on July 19th. And that night, I was not sure we were going to make it out alive. Um, He was holding a gun trying to threaten me, threaten himself. He put it in his own mouth at one point and tried to get me to pull the trigger, like just a lot of very distorted stuff. And he pulled my feet out from underneath me and I hit the back of my head on the toilet. And um, that was, I was in the bathroom because he had told me to go clean my face off where I had blood running down my face from him hitting me. And so lots of really just awful things. And that night I said, God, if you'll get me and my baby out of your life, I will never come back. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I tried to work the marriage out for two years because I got myself in that mess, right? God told me not to marry him. God knew <laughs> what was coming down the road. I didn't listen. It was my own rebellion. It was my own thinking I know better that got me in that situation And so I call my oldest son, my lighthouse, because he was a beacon that God gave me to get me out of that situation. And I told God, I said, look, I married him. So if you want me to stay married to him for the next 40 years of my life, I will do that. But I'm never living with him again. And for the next two years, I prayed for grace and mercy. 
Um, so before the abuse happened, I had started going back to church and being involved in church. Um, and then the abuse happened. And once I left, I really started plugging back into my faith and my foundation. And basically for two years, I begged God, if he could find it in his grace and mercy, please deliver me from this marriage. Mm -hmm. And after our son was six months old, Ben was arrested and sentenced to one year in city jail on two public intoxication charges. Who does that happen to? Who do you know that has ever had public intox and spent a year in jail? That's hefty for public intox. But God did it for me. God did that for me because I needed that time to separate my heart. Mm. And during that process, I was able to separate my heart and I'll never forget. I was, we had a dog um, and I had gotten in a fight with his aunt about the dog and driving home that night. um, God said, it's finished. Mm. And I took my wedding rings off and I called a divorce lawyer the next day and we were divorced by August. And that was in February of 03. So we were divorced by August of 03. And um, he passed away last year of alcoholism. In 2022? Four years old. Mm-hmm. In 2022. And he was 44 years old. So he never really did find any sort of healing or peace or. No. And he never forgave himself. I have to say this. He, he fully took it ownership and acknowledged of his abusive behavior toward me he even told our son about it and Mm. was like your mom never deserved that and I have to give him credit for that because he totally owned his behavior and I truly don't think he ever forgave himself for it though uh, we had a good relationship through the years I wonder if alcoholism even drug abuse is shame-based I wonder oh absolutely yeah seems like it would be anyway as you were telling your story you were talking about you know God told you not to marry him so literally God is saying lay it down sweetheart this is not for you do not grab this up for yourself and I can't tell you how many times I've done that to the Lord but there comes a time when you do lay it down you have to lay it down because his no was still a no and it never turned into a yes that's right and so it seems like when we start marriages out on that basis and we're praying really hard for God to turn things around and change things, which he can do. But if it was a no from the beginning, I'm not sure that he changes his nose. But that's just me thinking about character of God. When he says no, he he's not a wishy-washy God. He's not a, uh, you know what? Yeah, okay. I said no, but I really, you know, yeah, we can make it work. So I don't see him as that. His nose or nose. Um, so God releases you from your marriage, uh, to Ben. And then you see an old acquaintance, Jay, who as young teens didn't like you because he was into the drug scene and you were a Christian. And you had mentioned that when we were talking earlier, that one of his life goals was to OD in New Orleans at 21, but God had other plans for him. And can you tell us what God did for Ben on his 21st birthday in New Orleans? Jay. Yeah. So he was baptized 
on his 21st birthday in New Orleans. So instead of dying for real, he died to his flesh on his 21st birthday in New Orleans, which is such an amazing and beautiful thing. How does that lead into the two of you starting a ministry? So that was actually years um, before we ran into each other. I think he was like 26, 27 before we reconnected. So um, two weeks after my divorce, actually, um, I was at a punk show and talking to some friends out front and um, Jay drives by in this beater truck and he gets out and I'm like, oh man, I hadn't seen him in a really long time. And um, everybody in the scene knew that I was a Christian. I was known for being the only Christian. And um, so he came up to me and he tried to tell me that he was a Christian. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm sure like a jailhouse Christian, right? Like you met Jesus in the jailhouse. <laughs> right, right. And um, he asked me for my phone number and I tried to throw it off a number, but God would not let me. And so I wrote it on a shirt and he called me the next day and he was like, hey, this is Jay. And I was like, I know who you are. He was kind of a notorious in the scene. Like he was very popular in Birmingham. He was very well known everywhere because he was super active in everything and so of course I knew who he was but we had never been friends and um he had actually made fun of people for dating me when we were teens and so we started hanging out and we launched this ministry called riot which was reaching into our territory um, all geared toward punk rockers, hardcore kids, skateboarders, prostitutes, drug addicts. We did a ton of homeless ministry. Um, just a little side note, if you ever want to help the homeless, buy them socks. They can get food, they can get clothes just about anywhere, but socks are very hard to come by. So at the time, um, you'll hear a lot about like boot rot, foot rot, stuff like that, okay, because yeah. they can't change their socks. Okay. Um, so interestingly, at that time, this was 2003, 2004, um, February of 04, actually, we went up to Mentone or Fort Payne, Alabama, who was the sock capital of the world at the time. They had all these sock manufacturing plants. So we had rounded up 80 bucks and we went up there and we bought, I think it was like 300 pairs of socks for like 80 bucks. Wow. And um, so we came back and we would like type out our testimony, like the people in our riot group would type out their testimony and we'd rubber band it and we would go to homeless camps That's cool. and pass out the socks and talk to people. And um, Jay was such a huge spearhead. First of all, he was huge. He was 6'3 and 390 pounds, right? And he was a punk rocker. He was scared of nothing. <laughs> so um, he spearheaded a lot of that because with him, I always felt safe. The rule was I was not allowed to do 
any homeless ministry on my own. So even people we frequented like or frequently communicated with, if I was alone, I, I would not talk with them or any of that sort of stuff because of the danger level. He's a huge guy. So he's got a formidable presence wherever he goes and he chooses socks. (laughs) That kind of reminds me of God. He's so great. He's so sovereign. And yet he comes to us in the details of our lives. And I love that about him. And then of course, ministry then leads to marriage. Did you ask God about this one? Did you pray and say, God, is this the man for me? Oh, I was like, God, I'll take any man on the planet, but Jay Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am never going to marry this man. Okay. So pretty much Jay was dating me from the day we met. Right. Oh, okay. And he came over to my house one day and I said, okay, can we just not make this weird between us? And it's, it's never going to happen, Jay. Like it's never going to happen. Um, First of all, I have to say this just because this was always funny to us. My ex-husband was 6'3 and 160 pounds. Jay was 6'3 and 390 pounds. I always said they made a 10, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I had never dated a big guy. That was a, that was a huge change for me. And um, Jay was a lot he was a lot like he was big. His personality was big. Like you just said, he was a presence everywhere he went. He didn't go anywhere that he didn't know the whole room by the time he left. And, um, so he was a lot and I was like, no, no, uh, I'm not, not going here on our ministry. We went to this thing called the call in Texas. And this was November of 03. And on that trip, Jay and I got really, really, really close. We just really bonded. He became my best friend on that trip. So this is about two or three months after we started hanging out more regularly. And I guess it was in January of 04. I was looking at him one night and I was like, "Uh maybe he's not so bad. (laughs) And God just kept pushing my heart toward him and pushing my heart toward him. And he spoke life into me. We would literally just sit around with Bibles open, all these translations and just dissect the word and argue and do that iron sharpening iron. And we had such different perspectives. We came from such different backgrounds. So like getting into this meaty, meaty conversations. It was like, it was the best thing ever. And, um, I prayed, I said, so God told me we were at a conference and God told me that my new name would be Jordan. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. I was like, Oh, uh, -uh. nope, nope. Mm -mm." And so I said, okay, God, if you, this is what you're telling me, I need three signs. I want one from someone I know and trust. I want one that's totally random. And I want one from your word. So the first one kind of came from my mom. And she said that she felt like God had called her into her marriage after she had become a widow. And we went to lunch. We had this long conversation. So that was kind of the first sign. Then the second sign was, believe it or not, TLC 
was on um, like the Catholic channel or something. And I don't even watch that stuff, but I was scrolling through and um, it was, I think Chili from TLC was talking and, um, or wait, no, maybe it was Peppa from Salt and Peppa. I can't remember. It was either Chili or Peppa. I can't remember which one, but <laughs> I love both of those groups. Yeah. So, um, and she was talking about how God restores mm-hmm. stuff and that it may seem like the craziest thing you've ever experienced, but God will restore you through it. And so that was like the second one. Well, then the third one was the story about um, the king. And I believe it's in Kings where he tells Nahum to go wash in the Jordan seven times and he will be renewed like a young boy. Mm-hmm. And the king was like, oh, uh-uh. have you seen the Jordan? No, no, I'm not going to the Jordan. And I'm like, dude, I hear you. I'm not going to the Jordan either. <laughs> and the guy is specific too, but yet not specific. <laughs> exactly. And so the guy's like servant is like, maybe you should listen to what the prophet has told you and go dip in the Jordan seven times. Like, what is it going to hurt? You you can't be worse off than you already are. You've come so all this way. It? Yes. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> yes. And so the king was like, okay. So he goes and he dips in the Jordan seven times and he comes out renewed like a young boy. He has full healing. And that was the third sign for me. And then the final thing I was driving in my car one day and the song came on and it says, when I cross over the Jordan, I'll be running back to you. Hmm. And I like burst into tears. I was like, okay, okay, I'll marry him. (laughs) And so we got married on a Wednesday. I told him on Sunday and we got married on Wednesday. Well, you said he, he considered himself dating you from the point where he gave you the phone call. All right. So, where do the need for boundaries like are you getting any sort of indications along the way but where does this desperate need for boundaries come in because it sounds like you had them with ben or you needed them because you you moved out you said lord if you get me out of this house alive tonight i'm not coming back so you get out and then you try to work on it from a distance for two years but then but you don't go back god releases you and now you're with ben but ben has a little bit of a setback too at what point though are you like boundaries are necessary i've got so, to figure out what this is about yeah so with ben i didn't realize my part of the sixth cycle right i thought ben was the problem like ben's alcoholism was the problem i had no idea at that point, how I was playing into that. So I did set boundaries with Ben, but not out of wisdom or knowledge, just out of necessity and survival, which are valid boundaries as well. I mean, if you're in an abusive situation, survival, go for that, whatever that is, whatever boundary that says, if you are in an abusive situation, leave. If you are in a dangerously abusive situation, you need to get a game plan and leave. Like there's just no other option. Leave is your, is your primary number one goal. It will not get better. The abuse cycle does not change. You have to leave and get yourself safe and your children. So um, I'm huge on 
on that part. But then, so Jay obviously had a huge drug problem as a teen. I mean, if you desire to OD at 21, you're, you're pretty deep into drugs, right? So about a year after we got married, he relapsed and started using. And Jay, just like everything else, he was a lot. Everything was all or nothing. So when he started using, I mean, he's stealing everything in the house, pawning everything in the house. Like it was bad and um, totally different experience from alcoholism, by the way. Um, drug addiction is much shadier, much darker, um, much more destructive faster and I I had never been into drugs never and I was never a drinker either I was all I wasn't a teetotaler I smoked cigarettes at the time but I was never into drugs and alcohol personally so I had very little experience of, on all of that and I told you my parents were teetotalers so I had no experience growing up and um so these were, these were huge learning curves for me to have an alcoholic and now a drug addict that I'm dealing with intimately, right? Like I right, said, yeah. from the outside looking in, it, it's a totally different experience than being intimate. Maybe about halfway through his relapse, I started going to a group at church called Serenity that was like an Al-Anon based group. Uh, but Christian used, used scripture and everything to go with it. And that was my first introduction to boundaries and how, how you play into the sixth cycle with your codependency. And I learned that I am a controlling codependent. I talk about this in my book. There's three basic kinds, which is controlling, enabling, and then a controlling enabling, which is kind of a hybrid, but I was definitely controlling codependent. I felt like as long as I had him on the phone, he wasn't going to be using. So I'd call him 16,000 times a day. Um, I felt like if I had control over the situation that I could manage it. Right. And this was when I started learning about me <laughs> and that maybe, maybe I wasn't okay after all that maybe it wasn't just, I kept marrying disasters, but maybe just maybe I myself am a disaster. And that was like rude. <laughs> that was probably the most rude eye-opening thing that happened to me, but it was a beautiful gift of truth that really began to teach me about my own insecurities, my own brokenness, my own lack of trust, my own uh, delusion of control, my own um, lack of feeling that God was truly on my side. And that I could fully trust him. Beautiful in the sense that God's now calling you into these areas to heal you. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beginning to shine the light 
on myself. What I had always done was shine the light on other people and felt like I could control those people or fix those people or do whatever. And here I am standing in the shadow of my own light, right? And not looking at myself. And so he began to like turn this light to face myself and show me all of these places that I needed fixing repair work healing because I've learned that that is the only thing you have control over really is to change yourself and to make choices differently so equip yourself that's absolutely correct you only have control over yourself, your emotions, your responses, your actions, and your behaviors. You legitimately cannot control anybody else. And so that's important to know for setting boundaries. So that alone let you know that there has to be some boundaries here because this is this is not going well. So you, do you start with boundaries with yourself after trying so hard to keep boundaries and accountability on him, although he is free-falling in his addiction? So one of the hardest parts about like codependent recovery is that you have to learn to accept that people may die. They may die in their addictions. They may die in their um, bad behaviors. They may die in whatever they're choosing to participate in that you're trying to control them from stopping. Um, That is that is the hardest part because acceptance acceptance is not saying it's okay it's full relinquishing like when you accept jesus you fully relinquish your control over your life right you you are accepting jesus to relinquish control to him so accepting um that someone may die is so difficult because the thought of losing someone you love is traumatic and devastating. And really a little side note here, we were never meant to taste death. Death is not part of our design. Death came in with sin. So it's the only natural process we go through that we never recover from. Nobody is traumatized from being born. Nobody's traumatized from growing up. Nobody's traumatized from any natural process, your hair growing, your fingernails growing. Nobody's traumatized by that. We're traumatized by death because we were never designed to taste it. And so accepting that Jesus has the keys to death in Hades, that now Jesus possesses death, we as believers and Christians, have to be able to accept that and be okay with it because we don't grieve without hope. We have hope. We know that this is not the end. And that is a great way to start the process of accepting that someone may die in their, in their addiction. Because of God's sovereignty, he decides last breath, first breath. So even God's sovereignty in that kind of condition is something we can rest in. It's not our burden. Because I think when I hear other um, guests talk before about struggling with a, a child in addiction or a loved one in addiction, they 
desperately want to save them and they desperately do everything they can that they think will keep them alive. And yet it's all the wrong stuff. It's all the things that are prolonging the process and enabling the process. And that's a hard thing to come to the terms of that if you you have to let go, but your daughter may die. And so that's what you were going through with with Jay. Yeah, I knew I had to get to the point. We already had two. Well, we had one daughter. So we had two kids at the time. Um, I had my oldest. Ben was an absent father for the most part, but um, Jay took him on like he was his own. So I had my oldest and then we had our baby daughter at the time. I was terrified for him to die. I was terrified for something to happen to him. And I did. I wanted to save him. I wanted to make our family okay. I wanted everything to just be normal. Why couldn't it just be normal? Why did it have to be so screwed up? But what this process of boundaries helped me understand is that the reason it screwed up is because there are lack of boundaries. So there was no, this is where you end and I begin. This is where I begin or I end and you begin. There was no like cushion, you know, like your spine has cushion, your joints have cushion. Everything needs a little bit of cushion. And, and there was no cushion in that relationship. It just felt like it was supposed to be grinding each other is kind of what it felt like and that that's just not the case and I think a lot of times with marriage we don't know that we need cushion in that it how do you be one and have cushion right yeah and and that's a huge challenge but I do believe that with wisdom and guidance you can get to that place but it starts with recognizing your issues, your problems, your challenges. What are you bringing to the table that creates the toxic middle? And those are the things you can control. You can't control what they do. You can only control you. So when you are, when you are like beginning this stage of separating, sometimes it will feel selfish because you're not used to it. So when you tell them no, and you stand on a hard no, and they're like, why are you being so selfish? You're like, am I being selfish? I may be being selfish. I don't want to be selfish, but no, no, what you're doing there is you're creating cushion that you've never had before. So as you take that next little step back to create some cushion in that relationship, to where they can operate and you can operate and y'all can be working together. But if you're working apart from each other, you're not colliding constantly. So boundaries are good for even healthy relationships, but healthy relationships don't need the same distance of cushion, right? We're talking unhealthy relationships. You need cushion. And so that cushion that you get could that be something such as if the abuse starts get out leave and extract yourself from the situation and then work on it from that angle like work on it from the outside in absolutely if you're in 
if you're in an abusive situation, get, get out, whatever. If, whether you work that relationship out or not, you do not have to solve that tomorrow. Yeah. Take as it took me two years, take as much time as you need to resolve. Because when your heart is mixed in with something and when you yeah. have children and all of that, it's not black and white. There is no, you know, you just, you're able to cut those emotions off overnight, but I do promise you this, God will pull you out of the mud you've created yourself mm-hmm. and that. he will absolutely be faithful to you. If, if you will be obedient to him in the journey, it's not going to be easy because you're in a mess, Yeah, but it is possible. Yeah, because we, you and I talked about this earlier, talking about a Christian marriage where there is abuse because we are talking about unhealthy relationships. We're not talking about the healthy ones. They don't need all this um, sort of doctoring, if you will, or attention to healing. So in this unhealthy relationship, it's Christian and the woman is being abused. Your advice is get out, get out immediately and work on it from there. And then you even went to talk to about divorce is the fruit of sin. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, I feel like if we justify sin at any time, then we, we're, we're neutering Jesus's work on the cross, right? So we have to acknowledge sin as sin. So my divorce from Ben was the fruit of my sinful decision to do what God told me not to do. God told me not to marry him. I did it anyway. So my divorce was just the fruit of that sinful choice. Um, If you divorce, like you just are like, well, we just can't get along. Then the divorce is sin because the Bible says all quarrels stem from selfish nature. So if you just can't get along, you're both just being very selfish, which is sin. And then you have a divorce, which is the fruit of that sin. So you can't get away from calling divorce sin, regardless of the the reason behind it. However, this is the beauty of Jesus and God's faithfulness and his father's heart, right? I firmly believe there is no justification for abuse in any relationship. You will not find it cover to cover in the Bible. God will never give a reason to harm your spouse ever. It is not there. And um, if anything, it says, treat your wife gently, sacrifice for her like Christ loved the church. There are very specific things that are, that, that the Bible expresses to love your wife and treat her well. So, um, and vice versa, I believe that goes for the husband, but more on the respect side to honor and respect your husband. However, um, when God delivered me, from that marriage, he gave me a scripture of Malachi that says, do not be treacherous to the wife of your youth for God hates divorce. And I had definitely been dealt treacherously. And that scripture was so encouraging for me. Um, And here's the thing. I, I think a lot of people don't understand how this works with the Bible. So there are a ton of scriptures about marriage, cover to cover, really. 
not every single scripture fits every single situation you're in, but there will be a scripture that God will, will burst to life because it's a living word for every single situation you're in. And so I think that you have to have relationship with God to know what his word is trying to say to you and trying to tell you. And so when, when the church corrupts scripture and tries to guilt or shame a woman into staying in a marriage because it says not to divorce unless there's adultery and he's never cheated on me. So I'm not going to divorce. You know what? God is a father and I'm a mother. I'm a human mother with a lot of sin. And I can tell you if someone went and did that to my kid, I would want to beat them to smithereens. And I would certainly want my kid out of that situation. So if me full of sin can feel that way about my own child, our God, our father who loves us infinitely and wants relationship, there is no way He wants you to remain and stay in a relationship that you are being physically harmed and potentially destroyed. Like you just, there's nothing that justifies it. And I don't possibly understand how the church can ever say that God would condone that. But that doesn't change that the, the divorce is still sin, right? So we have to put that under the grace and mercy of the cross. And we have to allow the, the work, the complete work of Jesus and redemption mm-hmm. to cover that for us. Amen. And even abuse from narcissistic uh, personalities so that even the mental and emotional abuse uh, is, cannot be, what do you want to say, negated um, because it's as important as the physical abuse, in my opinion. You know, the, the difference between the two is one you can physically see, the other you can't. And and I would venture to say that the the damage that you can't see takes forever to heal and restore and rewrite, if you will. Yes. So mental and emotional. I, I say get out of that too. <laughs> and I'm not saying that you have to divorce. I'm right. saying get out until you get your mind back, however long that takes. With Jay, he had a relapse. So now you take a step back. You're starting to put some boundaries in place because it becomes more about protection and safety for the mental um, health of you, your children. Uh, How long does it take you to work things out with Jay? And is it because of boundaries that you put in place that you then see a change in Jay? So October of 2006, um, everything came to a head. And um, he was actually supposed to start a new job that morning. And I got up to say goodbye and I catch him about to shoot up in the kitchen. And I grabbed it out of his hand and I squirted it down the sink and I broke the rig and threw it in the trash. And I was like, get out, get out. I don't want you back here. And so I kicked him out that day and he was able to still come and visit and all that sort of stuff, me and the kids. And one day he did a job. He was a great mechanic and he did a, he did a break job or something and got 400 bucks. And so he gave me the cash and we hung out that night. And if that tiny hole did not steal that money as he walked out the door that night and 
I showed up at the place he was staying the next day. I threw a bowl of ice water on him because he was still asleep. And I said, I want you to know that if you show up at the daycare, they will call the police. I have alerted them that you are no longer allowed on the property. You're not allowed to see me or the children outside of a public location. And like, basically, this is it unless you go to rehab and you get help. Like, this is where we're at. It, this is all over with. Um, but I hadn't said I was going to divorce him or any of that because we have to remember God had called me into this marriage. Like there was no getting out of this marriage. There was no going anywhere. Believe me, I begged. I was like, you just delivered me from this alcoholic. Now you've called me into a marriage with a drug addict. Are you kidding me? But so let's go back to sin. Oh, I was infuriated. I was mad at Jay. I was mad at God. I was mad at the whole situation. I hated everybody. But let's go back to the fruit of sin, right? Sin has long lasting consequences. God did deliver me out of my marriage that he had not called me into. He wasn't going to deliver me out of my marriage that he did call, call me into. The difference was, is Jay had a heart for God. Ben never did. Jay loved the Lord and had a passionate heart for Jesus. But we, we were a mess in our marriage. And so um, about two or three weeks later after that, when he could no longer see us, he went to rehab and on his own accord, he set everything up. He just showed up one day and told me that he had organized everything and that he was going to rehab. He went to a place called the Foundry. He never used again after that. It, the damage was long lasting in our marriage. It took many, many years to get any sort of level. Right. That's a true blessing right there, because I feel like once that's a demon, in my opinion, and once it gets a hold of you, it does not want to ever give up, does not want to ever relinquish any sort of ground it's gained. That's so, correct. He always felt like it was a monkey on his back. You know, mm -hmm. it was always lurking behind him, lurking in the shadows. But um, praise God, he had Jesus, right? Yeah. He had the power of the Holy Spirit in his life yeah. to defeat it. But um, he couldn't live without me and the kids. He just, he could not have functioned without us. So that boundary did push him into a place to make a choice of what was more important to him than not. Mm -hmm. uh, the abuse, the difference between the abuse cycle and the sin cycle, talk to me a little bit about that, because I know at some point you have to interrupt it with a boundary. And so what does that look like? So the abuse cycle, how that goes is, so you're doing well, you're doing well, everything's awesome. It's great. It's, it's who you fell in love with, all this sort of stuff. And then the abuse happens. And then you get into this situation of like, oh, I'm so sorry. The, they call it the uh, honeymoon phase, like where they're apologetic and they're trying to make up for it. And so you you kind of forget that it happened. You overlook that it happened, whatever. So that's the abuse cycle. The sin cycle is very similar, right? Like you're going along, everything's okay. Then you sin and then you're like, oh crap. I send, oh crap, I send, oh, oh crap, I send. And then you forget that you send and you're doing fine. And then you sin again. So 
that's the sin cycle and the abuse cycle are very similar cycles. The difference is, and the abuse cycle, when you say enough, I'm not doing this anymore. You stop that cycle before the honeymoon phase ever has a chance to kick in. You stop it right after the abuse and you say, I'm done with this. So the only choice that person has is either to get healthy or to go away. (laughs) There is no more honeymoon phase to get back to the cycle of, I love this person, right? So the sin cycle is very similar. When When you have Christ in your life, there's a call to repentance. And to repent actually means to turn away from. So when you're dealing with a sin cycle, and everything's kind of going along well, and then you catch yourself in a sin, the only way to reverse that is to repent. So right after that sin, you repent, you turn around, you acknowledge that sin, right? Oh my gosh, God, I just did this thing. And then you go back to the healthy relationship, but you don't just overlook that sin cycle and say, oh, it's no big deal. I'm just going to do what I want to do until you hit it again. You have to stop that sin cycle in its tracks, repent from that behavior and go back. So repentance is needed in the abuse cycle, but it looks a little bit different because you are, well, I think it looks a little bit different because you are piercing between the abuse and the ability to ask for forgiveness, beg for forgiveness, plead their great love for you, which it's not genuine. But repentance, true repentance is genuine. What does true repentance look like in an abuse cycle? So in an abuse cycle, um, if you're dealing with somebody that has been abusive to you, they will be making the efforts themselves, not because you've made threats, not because you're not around, not because of any of anything that has to do with you, right? On their own accord, they will make the effort to get help that they need, continued therapy, and you will have to see long-term resolutions before you need, like um, you can give each step credit, right? But you don't move back in just because they did one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're able to set what works for you, like what behaviors you need to see and how long you need to see them for your own safety. Because when you're dealing with abuse situations, this is crossing the line to where you've created a victim of your behavior, which is way more extreme than like we just don't get along. Right. So your boundaries for for an abuse situation should be very, very strict, very, very firm. And um, every time you give, you tell that person what you did isn't that big of a deal. And um, so you just, you cannot give, you have to, and whatever that looks like for you, you know, if that's going and buying your own apartment or renting your own apartment or house or whatever for a year, and you know that for one solid year, you're not going to live with that person, then that may be what you have to do. And in that year, you can say, you know, these are the things that I need to see to begin to work on the relationship. So these are things you just need to see before you're even willing to talk about repairing. 
which may be, you know, I want to see six months of anger management classes. I want you in therapy. I'm not even going to therapy with you. You're going alone. (laughs) I won't go to therapy with you until you have done one solid year of therapy, that kind of stuff. Um, Where with just like an unhealthy relationship, it may be setting the boundaries like, no, I'm not going to go to parties with you anymore because I don't feel comfortable there. And you've always gone before. So this is a new behavior. And um, you can guarantee that when you first start setting boundaries, people will be angry with you. But the people who love you and care about you and genuinely want to have a healthy relationship with you will begin to honor your boundaries, whether they agree with them or not. Yeah, Which brings me to this thought. You say that if you can't say no, you are not ready for a no. One of our problems in our culture with the word no is that we consider it personal rejection. If someone tells us no, we take it personal. So when you start setting boundaries and you can say no and hold that no, and you recognize you're not rejecting that person, it just doesn't work for you. Then you're so much more capable of accepting someone else's no, because you recognize that no doesn't always equate rejection. Sometimes no just means I don't want to do that. It has nothing to do with the other person. And that's a really freeing place to be because you're able to freely say no and freely accept no without getting the messy feeling personal rejection stuff happening in the middle of it. I think that's one of the problems with people trying to set boundaries. They think they're being uh, cruel or or judgmental and that's not the case. It's not the that's not the truth. So what is the power of saying no? What does that do for somebody? What kind of freedom does that give somebody? So the power in saying no is that you've learned yourself a little bit. Um, I don't even think you know how to say no if you don't know who you are and what you like and what you prefer, right? We talked about this earlier. You think you know yourself, right? We were kind of giggling earlier. We were like, yeah, I'm funny. Nobody else thinks I'm funny but me. And you're like, I'm nice. Nobody else probably thinks I'm nice but me, right? Yeah. (laughs) Self-perception. Exactly. So the way we perceive ourselves is often not real. And so you may think that you like something just because you've always done that thing or that behavior, and it's just more habitual than it is something you actually like or prefer. And what you may find is when you begin to self-reflect, it's like, hmm, I didn't like that so much after all. That's what's happened to me somewhat as I've grown in maturity with the Lord is I can look back on things that I used to think were okay or funny, or I could laugh off or joke off. Now they're not funny anymore. And I'm not as inclined to allow those conversations or behaviors or whatever, where before I would have just chalked it up to be like, oh, that's no big deal. Not my business, whatever, overlooked it. And instead of setting a standard for acceptance. And so as I matured in the Lord and got to know myself better, now I'm like, you know what? I'm just not really down with that. And now I can set a better standard for myself and what feels good 
for or comfortable for me. And so no really comes along with that. Learning to be able to say, no, I'm not okay with that. No, our culture is super codependent right now. It is off the charts codependent ever since 2020 happened. And they came in with this tagline, you know, that you're responsible for everybody else's health. Ever since then, it is just, got off the charts crazy. Now we're responsible for everybody else's feelings. We're responsible for making everybody feel accepted. We're responsible for their health. We're responsible for their lives. We're responsible for everything. And it's like, no, no, I have set so many firm no's. I'm like, look, if I'm responsible for your health, nobody is eating gluten, sugar, dairy, corn, or soy. That's where I'm starting. You know, like, And so I don't have that ability, right? I can't even tell you not to eat gluten, dairy, corn, or soy, or sugar. So how can I possibly be responsible for somebody else's health? So just saying no, that no, I am not responsible for that was very freeing. Somebody else's feelings. I can't make you happy, sad. I can't change depression. I can't, I have no responsibility over that. So no, I'm not responsible for that. And accepting that no, that I am not responsible helps me accept you saying no, that you're not responsible for my feelings and emotions and needs and wants. And so you get back to a sense of autonomy when you're able to say no and accept no. You realize you are responsible for your own actions, behaviors, thinking processes, emotions, feelings, and not responsible for someone else's. And having that sense of autonomy is a super beautiful sense of freedom. That doesn't mean you don't care about others. And that doesn't mean that you can't encourage or help along or whatever you feel is, you know, good advice. It just means that you recognize that you're your own autonomous person and they are their own autonomous person. And that is really the beauty of the word no and accepting no. That beauty of freedom in that particular form, because it does empower you so in so many ways and lightens the stress load and the mental anguish of that. So I always feel like a no leaves room for a better yes. We've touched on this As we look at the consequences of not saying no, but let's, for the purposes of making it concise, what are the consequences of not saying no? You have toxic relationships. (laughs) Going back to our culture and the taglines, right? Toxic relationship, toxic everything. We love that word toxic. And today we throw it around like we do friend. That's the consequences is you have a lot of toxic relationships. You end up in relationships that exhaust you. You end up in relationships that uh, spend your money, your time, your energy negatively. You end up in relationships that um, tax you emotionally. Um, the, The consequences are you're miserable. You don't like the people you're around. You don't like what's happening in your life. Your life is a mess. Your friendships are a mess. And it there's no standard. I mean, you can be super wealthy to super dirt poor. This 
is full range of all humanity. If you're not setting healthy boundaries, if you don't learn to say no, and you don't understand your own autonomy, you are going to deal with toxic relationships. And that's, that is the consequences of, of not having boundaries in your life. So maybe it's not so much about being a toxic person. It's about not having boundaries that cause toxic situations. That's correct. I don't, I don't believe that most people are toxic. I do believe that most people have a genuine concern or care for other people and they want to be loved. They just don't know one that they are already madly crazy, crazy loved by God. And secondly, they don't know that they're autonomous, that they are still a hundred percent okay all on their own. And that what they choose, the relationships they choose to allow in their lives are made to enhance and challenge you. You need people that are telling you no. You need people that are telling you you suck sometimes. As a matter of fact, if you're my Facebook friend, about once a year, I will have a reminder that you suck sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You're that straight shooter. Because I say you need two people in your life. Well, you need many people. But as far as make sure you have one of these two person, oh, both of these personalities in your life and and in your inner circle so that they have invested in your life. When they speak these things to you, you understand what they're, that you know, it comes from a place of their heart. And that is one, the straight shooter where they tell you, oh, no, you screwed up. Nope. That's you shouldn't have done that. And the second one is the encourager where when you do mess up really bad, they're like, it's all right. You're human. You're going to make it. You can do better next time. You know, that kind of thing. So give me those two people any day. (laughs) Yes, I agree. I'm definitely the straight shooter. I'm an encourager too. I love to cheerlead people. It's one of my, one of my most favorite things on the planet, but I am the cheerleader that looks more like a drill sergeant. (laughs) <laughs> then like rah, rah, re on the side of the thing, you can do this, right? I'm right. more like, get up, get up. <laughs> hey, that's valuable if you ask me, because how do you learn to be more intentional and more purposeful with your decisions and your responsibilities, unless you have somebody kind of calling you on your stuff? And so I, I personally uh, value that very much in my relationships. A minute ago, you were describing what the consequences are for saying no. It's that overwhelm. You're frustrated. You are, you know, you just feel like you're in toxic relationship. And so that to me answers this question about how do we determine that we need boundaries? So we're kind of looking for those situations where we feel violated and humiliated when we leave someone, you know, after interacting with them, maybe we feel exhausted or we feel like, well, I think you even said this, that we have to cope somehow. Like we're looking, go shopping, go eating or whatever. But you made also an interesting statement that I wanted to share with the audience too, is that kids, boundaries with kids, how do you know that you need boundaries with your kids that you don't have good ones? And I thought that was very interesting. I never thought about that because you as a mother of five children, they're always touching you. They're always in your space. They're always calling your name. How do you draw that boundary as a mother? So again, knowing yourself is important. I call my touchometer my touchometer. And that means it, I will tell them my touchometer is redlined. That means you need to quit touching me. I cannot handle it anymore, but I don't reject them. Telling them, I don't want you to touch me is a lot harder than saying my touchometer is redlined. That's all about me. It's not about them. Right. Yeah. And so 
I, when my littles, especially, um, I became a widow with five children, um, at 37 years old, I had a eight month old, a two-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old. So, um, here I went from it being me and Jay doing this life together to just me. And I owned a salon storefront at the time. And I had five little children and I had six staff members and it, and clients, it was a lot of demand on me. And so I would have to compartmentalize some of that. Like I would have to remember that my kids hadn't seen me all day. So I would have to try and rejuvenate myself a little bit before I got home. And I was just totally spent. Um, but I would tell them that my touchometer was redlined. Like, I just don't want to be touched anymore. And they understood what that was because I would, it wasn't like they only heard it one time. They heard it regularly. Like the first time they might not have gotten it, but after about the 10th time of like, hey, my touchometer is redlined, they they knew what I meant and they would give me some space. Um, so doing things like that, just watching your wording, I think is really important with your children that you're not, it's not about them, right? It's about you and what you need. So expressing your needs is really important to your children. Um, Like I have teens right now and we're in the space of some difficult life stuff. And so we have lots of conversations, but they know I have told them over and over, there are certain paths that you may choose that I will not go with you. So if you choose that path, you're going it alone and you need to know that up front because I am not going down that path with you. My children know if they choose drugs and alcohol, they walk that path alone. I will not rescue. I will not bail you out of jail. Sorry, your dad's spent all my get out of jail free cards. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to sit in court with you. I'm not doing any of that. You chose to go that path alone. You just need to know up front that that's what you're choosing. So I try and have really good meaty conversations with my kids before they get there to know what the expectation is. Um, So that's one thing we talk about. Um, Another thing that we talk about is like having children at a young age. And I am trying to encourage them not to go that route, but I also encourage them not to be having sex at a young age because of the emotional tie. Now I can't control every single thing that they do, but they know that that is my constant encouragement. So, you know, and I've told them we will cross that bridge when we get to it. But I can tell you this, there isn't a life that God has created that isn't a gift or a blessing, regardless of when and what circumstance it comes into. Right. And so um, I believe in God's design and if God designed it, it is good. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just lay that full trust with him. But I do talk about boundaries with my kids. Like they're not allowed to be in their room with their significant other and have the door closed. They have right. to have 
the little two, the two littles are the babysitters a lot of times. Boundaries require relationship, which is the beautiful thing. It's going to enhance your relationship as a parent to Mm. be setting boundaries with your children because you can't set boundaries to somebody you're not even relationshiping with. Boundaries between you and your children, as far as being able to speak for yourself and what your needs are, and then also setting boundaries, clear boundaries for your children, uh, for them to be able to master life or at least to thrive at life. I don't think they understand what a gift it is to have your parents set those boundaries for you because you can always be the bad guy. My mom, she just don't get it. She won't let me do that. I would tell them all the time, make me the bad guy. I don't care. Don't care. So boundaries being what they are with children and with relationship, because you just made that point. There's no point in setting boundaries with people that you're not in relationship with. So when we think about that, there are boundaries that God has in place. He has placed some things in uh, for us, boundaries to keep us safe, to keep us healthy. What comes to your mind when we talk about boundaries that God has set? It's funny that you say that because we always are looking at all the behaviors, the lifestyles that God's like, don't participate in. And we're like, but we want to. I'm the master of what we want to, right? Um, And we look at him saying, hey, you know, don't have adulterous affairs. Don't get divorced. Don't, you know, be lying all the time. Don't be dishonest. Don't be a thief. Love me with all of your heart, mind, and soul. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, all of these sort of things. Here's the reason people don't like boundaries is because it's limits and we don't like limits. But the beautiful thing of what God is doing there is he's setting limits for our safety and our health. He's not setting limits to control us. That's that's the thing. He gave us free will. He doesn't try and control us. Just like a parent, you can't control your children. You only have so long that you have any sort of real control, right? And even then it's only partial control because they have their own brains. So God always is, his purpose is that we appreciate the limits that lead to obedience. So it's not about just like when your children obey you, you're like, yes, like you feel like you just won at the daggum lottery when a kid does something or doesn't do something that you told them not to do, you know, yeah, Uh, you feel like you just mastered something. Right. But it wasn't about you. You knew it was for their benefit. They either didn't do it and it benefited them because they didn't do it, or they did do it and it benefited them. And you're celebrating that it benefited them. You don't even own that. It's not your accomplishment and it wasn't your failure. You don't even own it. It's theirs. But when they do something that's good for them and their life, and you see them move along on the maturity scale and the life sucks, it's getting better scale, you know, like that you're, you're rejoicing in your heart for them. And I feel like that's how God feels for us. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, I can use this person because because they are submitted to my obedience. I can use this. This is something I can do. Mm. But when you're stuck in rebellion and you just want to do what you want to do and you don't care how God thinks or feels, especially as a Christian, then 
he just can't use that. Like he just can't, there's no space for the two. Just like if your kid is in a certain level of disaster, you may think you're fixing your kid, but you're not, you're just enabling the kid. They're still in disaster. You can't trust them with anything. You can't rely on them for anything. It's the same way when, when humans are not honoring God's boundaries and limits. It's not to control. It's really to, to celebrate us as we mature, because then we, then we can give back. And that's the beautiful thing. Just like a child who, who goes through and makes good decisions, they can then give back to their parents. And, and it's, I mean, if you've ever had your kid take you out to dinner, like that's really stinking cool. You're like, oh it gosh, is. they just paid for dinner. It is. I used to tell my boys and God showed me this. God showed me so many things as I was trying to learn how to be a parent. And he showed me his heart about me as his daughter. But one of the, the things that I stuck to with my kids were boundaries based on their morality uh, or for their morality, as well as their safety. The rest of it we could discuss. It was up for discussion. I had the final say, but those were the two that I would not give on or at, very, at the very least, very few times if I did it all. But, and I would tell them, I said, you know, I know you don't get it, but this is for your safety. This is to keep you healthy, to keep you safe. If you choose to go outside of these boundaries, like we do with God, when he sets a boundary for us, you tie my hands. Now you don't tie God's hands, but you tie my hands to the point where I just have to watch now. Now I'll be with you. If it happens to do with jail or court, I will visit you. I will, you know, sit beside you while the judge is reading down, whatever I said, but I can't do anything for you. I can't. I can't make a difference for you in that situation. And I yeah. feel like that's what God does for us is saying, hey, hon, if you want to do it this way, I can guarantee that you'll be safe and that you and I are going to grow together and we're going to learn some things together. But if you step outside my boundary, you will experience why I had the boundary. Yeah. That's exactly right. Going back okay. to the consequences we talked about earlier, right? Oh, yeah. You get toxicity outside of mm-hmm. God's boundaries. It's chaos. Like anytime, just like with me, I'm, he told me not to marry. I did anyway. And it became chaos. Like anytime that, that sin becomes your operating, it, it, it brings death. That's what sin leads to is death every single time, whether it's emotional death, physical death, mental death, spiritual death, whatever sin is always going to lead you to a state of death. You're right. You're right. Real quick, tell me about your book. We haven't talked about your book, and I definitely want to let people know what is it that you have written. So I wrote a book called Believing in Boundaries, and I actually have an online course as well on my website to go along with it, which actually deep dives into like how to set boundaries, because I felt like in the book, there's too much information to possibly go into. Um and just a book, it, it would be like an encyclopedia, right? Okay. Actually, you could have a whole encyclopedia not of novels about boundaries. But basically, um, the purpose, I wanted to share a little bit about my story. And um, of course, about how God has boundaries and how as image bearers, we are made to have boundaries as well. 
then I talk about three primary places to have boundaries, which are cultural boundaries, because our culture today is such a disaster. It's such a wreck. Um, and I feel like, especially as Christians and believers, if we don't know how to set boundaries culturally, we're in a lot of mess. I wrote out questions that were all supposed to be rhetorical. And God said, answer them. And I was like, Mm-mm, nope. And he said, answer them. And so all the area of the cultural section where I'm answering the questions, that was all because of God. And let me just tell you, I had some revelation moments that were incredible. It was such a cool experience. I love that. Um, but culturally, we have to, we have to have boundaries as believers. It's only going to get more chaotic from here. The Bible tells us that, yes, that it will be in like the days of Noah, where God was sorry he had made man. So as Christians Mm -hmm. and believers, we have to be prepared for that. We, We have to know and recognize evil is evil and where it's coming from. Um, we can't control others. That's the importance of knowing our boundaries, but we can absolutely stand for truth. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so then relational boundaries is that another place that I'll talk about. And, um, pretty much we've talked about that this whole time about the importance of, of having boundaries in all of your relationships is critical. And then the last thing I touch on in the book is having faith practice boundaries. I feel like we um, have a habit of kind of romanticizing and celebritizing pastors today, which was never supposed to happen. That was never what, how it was supposed to be. And so I talk about the dangers of that. I talk a little bit about mixing politics and faith and the dangers of that. Um, and that ultimately as Christians, our light is the light of Jesus and that Jesus has to shine forth first over anything else. And Jesus made a ton of people mad. <laughs> I mean, they killed him for it. So, right. yeah. so you will make people angry standing for Christ. You will make people angry um, carrying the banner of Jesus, but it is a valiant and worthy effort. And so if you're setting boundaries, well, it will help you to be able to do that and know your autonomy and that you're fully loved by God so that you don't feel this need to bend and give just to whatever is around you. That's huge. That's a huge burden lifted. If you can navigate that in your life. Yes. What a tool. What a tool. And you have online courses too. So that's really nice as well. I do have one more question for you, but I just thought of something. We kind of left the listener hanging, I guess, with regard to Jay's passing. So can you just summarize that really quick before we close? Yes. So um, in December of 2014, Jay died of hypertension. Um, I told you he was a big guy. He would never go to the doctor. He was stubborn. Of course, he had beat his body to smithereens through drug use and everything else. And um, he had told me, I don't remember when it was at some point that 
he thought he might be having a heart attack. And I was like, well, you need to go to the fire station. Oh my goodness. Well, of course he never did anything about it. And he, it was very sudden. He had just put our kids to bed and he kept talking about um, that his arm was hurting him a lot. I was 37. He had just turned 38, like um, young. Yes. Like I didn't know anything about heart, anything. I didn't even really know that hypertension could kill you at the time, you know? And, but he was dramatic. He was a lot. Remember I told you he was a lot, a lot. So um, he got out of the shower, which is what he always did. And he was laying at the end of our bed and he started convulsing. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you messing with me? Are you messing with me? Right. And uh, that was it. He Mm. was gone. It was lightning fast. And it was the most traumatic thing I've ever been through in all of my life. Mm. And um, y'all had gotten back together. You had three more children, right? So a total or yeah, three more children. So that was always, that was good news. Yeah. So we had four total Jordans and then with Nautis, we had five total. And, um, and the baby was just eight months old when he passed away. So, um, I feel like she is just like him. She is him made over. (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. I'm like, God just like squeaked her in (laughs) just in time. What do you miss most about him? I miss my friend. Yeah. He was an incredible friend. He was so interesting, so intelligent. I really feel like he was probably the most underrated person that I've ever come across. And that when people saw him, they only saw the outside of him mm-hmm. and made all sorts of judgments. Um, as a matter of fact, after his memorial service, his was his memorial service. <laughs> Um, we did it at the church I grew up in. It's a Baptist church. It was packed full. Uh, there was standing room only. And we had Satanists. We had prophetic evangelists. We had punk rockers. We had drug addicts straight out of prison. We had the typical suburban grandma. Um, we had a pagan priest there. And I mean, it was the most it just spoke everything about who he was and how he loved. He never forgot where he came from. And he just, he loved so fully and so well. He was just, if that is one thing he taught me, what it was about love. I knew nothing about love before I met him. And he taught me everything about love. That's incredible. That is really a gift left behind. If you have to depart, that's a beautiful gift to leave behind. What is the one thing that you want listeners to remember once this conversation's over? They may not remember anything else because we've talked about a lot, but what is the one thing you want them to remember? I would say I want you to remember that because you're made in the image of God, he set boundaries for healthy relationships. So set boundaries as mimicking him in your life for healthy relationships because it's just 
It's freedom. God, God, that's all God wants for us is freedom. And when we understand that limits help create healthy freedom, we can begin to resist them. God set that into place for us. So as his image bearers, set your boundaries and you'll be able to love people so much better. Healthy life in general. And then you have a healthy mental health. That's priceless, really, if you ask me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've left us with some beautiful information. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed hanging out with you. Take it easy. Thank you for your time and for sharing this experience with my guest. I hope you have found encouragement for today and a deeper revelation of God's heart in the midst of pain and suffering. We'd love to have you as a subscriber to Finding God in Our Pain so that you can be connected with all my guests as they share their personal experiences and professional knowledge about pain and suffering. And because this podcast is a division of the website, A Life of Thrive, for more information and the various ways you can connect with us, please visit the website, alifeofthrive.com. I look forward to sharing more transparent stories from the hearts of women who intimately know what it means to have their world flipped upside down, their authentic struggle to make sense of it, and what recovery and healing looks like. Till then, sweet woman, remember you are not alone and that God speaks the most beautiful things in the dark.